Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome to the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. It's nearly Grand Tour time, when our thoughts turn away from the cobbled classics and the one-day battles towards a summer of stage racing, starting, of course, with the Giro d'Italia. Eros Poli once finished last in the Giro, but he'll always be remembered for an extraordinary stage win in the Tour de France 25 years ago this July. Extraordinary because Eros was a domestique and a sprinter, six foot four and built like a tank and the stage he won after a long solo break went over the fearsome Mont Ventoux. Uh, you know, I won this stage. We was there without Cipollini because Cipollini was crashed. Uh, I have a bad crash at the Vuelta Espana, and 94 was the last year that the Vuelta Espana was racing in May, before the Giro. So Cipollini had a bad crash, so we have no real leader for the sprints uh, the Tour de France in 94. So... We was free to attack to try to win a stage. So you know our team was Mercatone Uno, a small team. Uh, need to show out the riders, so need to show something. So I was a solo three time, and uh, the first two time was no successful, but the, the, the third time was the good one. So in fact, I won this big stage of Movan Two, and then also I won the overall or the, the combativity fighting. So I was the most aggressive rider of the 2084, thanks to this attack. The first one was in Futuroscope. The second one was uh, on the big stage in the, in the Pyrenees. So I was, I was lucky. Well, the stage that you won, Montpellier to Carpentras, over Ventoux, you won it um, in part because you got so far ahead of people on the flat. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's, it was very strange because, uh, like, every day we start full gas from kilometer zero, every day. The day was the same, and then everybody stopped it because it was too hot. People needed some water, drink. So I remember we just missed a couple of K to the K50. So from K50, you can pick up some bottle from, from the car. But at the moment, uh, David Cassani, the actually coach of the Italian team, uh, is attacked before the feed zone, so nobody can take water. And I was behind, and the coach say, my coach say, "Hey, Cassani attack." So I say, "Fuck, it's not possible. You cannot attack on the feed zone. It's so hard. Everybody needs a drink. So okay, today nobody drink. So I remember I was hungry, 
uh, I decided to go on the attack. So I remember I was able to pass on the grass when I attacked because there was no space to pass because I'm arrived from behind very fast. And the first tree line was like a tree very slow. So I passed on the grass, jumped again on, a, on the asphalt, and then uh, um, they tried to catch me for the first 10 day. But I was very good in this session because it was my favorite road. It was very rolling, some tailwind, so it was perfect for me. So and then probably the group needed to drink, needed water, because I told you before, it was very, very, so they let me to go. So because they say, hey, it's the, the last one, the over, it's no danger, so let me go. So for that moment, I started calculating how many meters I need about to win the stage. So, okay, so this is the moment two is 22K climbing. I need a minimum 25 minutes because I'm going to lose a 22 minutes, one minute for each K. In fact, it was like that. I've done under K on the flat, and then I'm right at the bottom of one two with 25 minutes, 30 seconds. And I lost about 21 minutes from Pantani. So because Pantani tried to catch me. And uh, all this was done without radios and without power meters and everything, just you calculating in your head? No, I calculate my head because uh, uh, there's no radio, but there's uh, the blackboard, you know, the moto, all right, with the blackboard, they give me, okay, 10 minutes, then 12 minutes, then 15 minutes. I say, oh, wow, probably this time is the good one. So uh, I know uh, I have in front of me an, uh, about 100K flat. Uh, so 100K to build my my gap. <laughs> and what was it like when you went over Von 2, still in the lead? Oh, I was very bad before the last K because I heard the helicopter. I said, I'm fat. They catch me because the helicopter means it was over the riders, the, the, the lead guy with the grind and Pantani. But then when they tried to look back on me, I saw Pantani was still a lot far from me. So I said, oh, probably I can do it. I'm a good descender, no problem in the flat. My problem was just to move on too. Once I arrived at the top, it was easy. <laughs> easy. Not easy because after 200K, still missed 40K from the top to the finish. But, you know, it's always a good time try this in the full team. So I was fine. <laughs> As you say, Chris Boardman um, was always a, a, a big fan of the way that you would look after the Gruppetto, the autobus, the, the, the slower riders in the mountains. How complicated was that for you? I was the bigger guys in the front, everyone. So my problem was to arrive uh, at, this, at the mountain stage in time. I was always the first one to be dropped at the first climb. So can you imagine missing another four, three climbs or three pass and then the finish? So I was very focused, very concentrated. Uh, don't lose uh, control, keep calm. Uh, I was very powerful rider, so go with my pace. And then, you know, after maybe a couple of K, uh, I was start to see some rider come to find me, then two riders, then five, and then we became a big, a big group, like uh, 20, 25 riders, and then I was in charge to make the, the piece because uh, I was the guy more confident with the piece and then with the calculation about time limits. And then I have a good connection with the coach, so I ask uh, uh, normally how many minutes they are in front of us, the, the leaders. So, so it came, I can every time make uh, uh, real time, a quick calculation by mind at the top uh, of each pass. But the most funny thing, uh, it was one 
uh, we arrive uh, in Paris at the end of Tour de France, all the riders from the Gruppetto, they come to me to say, thank you, Eric, you saved my Tour de France. Thank you. So uh, it was a very funny moment. I was very happy. You were also uh, famous as Mario Cipollini's lead-out man. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I was the last one guy with Cipollini. Uh, I was a good sprinter too, and I was I was also a truck rider. I was Italian champion for sweet uh, when I was uh, 17 years old. But uh, I was a good sprinter, but not fast as a Cipollini or a real sprinter. So I find my perfect position, my perfect job uh, to do the last kilometer and the last K with Cipollino in my sit in my way. So I'm big guy, a Cipollini behind me. <laughs> it was easy for him. It was a simple job, it's just adrenaline, fun. You know, I'm big guy, I can see from far the, the, the trajectory of the, of the road, which the best side of the road to stay right or left because I have a good view. <laughs> they miss me now. But you were up against some very tough people. I mean, you uh, were racing at the, you were sprinting at the same time as Jamaluddin Abdijaparov, the Tashkent Terror. Now, uh, he wasn't an easy man to uh, beat in a sprint, was he? No, but the problem is no uh, to stay in front of him because Abdul Jaffer always fighting, tried to keep the wheel of Cipollini, the back wheel of Cipollini. So for me, it was not a big problem because I was just in front of Mario. The problem was just behind Mario because everybody, all the sprinters try to stay behind Mario, not behind me, because normally they respect my position, so they know my, my behind me must be Mario. Then behind, behind Mario... Was the was a lot dangerous because everybody fighting for the best position behind him. So I was pretty in the safe position. I was happy, no, no in danger. Also, also because the team was very strong. Seiko team was a very very strong team for the sprint. So I have a good teammate in front of me before to do my job at the last 500 meters. And I know that it's now aperitivo time in Italy where we're talking to you, so I won't keep you from that. Yeah, aperitivo. Now you have some salami, parma ham, pecorino cheese. Uh, you have a Chianti, you have a spritz aperos, but the best is ham and cheese and, and wine. I won't keep you from it. Eros Poli, thank you so much for joining us on the Rulo podcast. Thank you, grazie. Ciao a tutti. Enjoy the bike. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Bye. Eros Poli. David Miller won stages in all three Grand Tours, the Giro, Tour de France and Vuelta. He's now a successful commentator and runs the clothing brand Chapter 3. And he's about to take on a particularly daunting challenge, riding from Leicester to Blackburn in the company of Rouleur's Stuart Clapp. It's a bit of a random one. Leicester is, for those who don't know, sort of, it's mid-North England, um, and Blackburn is northwest of Manchester. And between the two of them is Peak District. So in itself, it sounds like quite a nondescript ride, but it actually turns into an absolutely beautiful 200-kilometer ride. Um, but you do have to cross the whole of the Peak District. But that's not why we're doing it. It's why we're doing it. It's because um, it's actually with Chapter 3 we started working. We're, we're working towards, as we grow, being able to kind of be slightly more ethical and considered regards where we, we source our products from. And... I had the good fortune of meeting a, a chap called Patrick Grant. The bit that's relevant to this is he owns a factory called Cookson & Clegg in Blackburn. And Cookson & Clegg were one of the biggest military suppliers of T-shirts and, and general military wear um, in the 20th century. 
uh, to the British Army. Sadly, like most of the British textile industry, uh, that went into decline and was on the verge of closing, and Patrick saved it. I asked them if they would be able to make our T-shirts and sweats, because at the moment, the T-shirts and sweats, you'll find with Chapter 3, we, like almost every other brand uh, that you'll know, uh, outsources and sources those and then prints on them. And I was hoping that we could get to a point where we could actually design and manufacture our own sweatshirts and T-shirts. And Patrick's like, yeah, I'd love to help you with that. So we've, I went up there, visited the factory and met all the people there and, and learned about the whole process and I brought these examples and showed them the kind of the pattern that I'd like and how I'd like these, these things to be cut and the fabrics. And they started showing me the fabrics. And I said, oh, where do you get these from? And they're like, well, actually, we the, the actual fabric is sourced either from an organic farm in California place in Germany we also have somewhere in the UK and then we have it all arrives here and it all gets knitted together in this little factory in Leicester and I was like oh wow that's amazing and like, yeah it gets dyed just not down the road from there as well I thought that'd be brilliant so you mean to tell me the the fabric that is going to be cut to make our t-shirts and sweatshirts is actually also knitted here in the UK and he was like yeah I said I tell you, you know it'd be brilliant if we actually I'd love to go and visit the factory and then we rode between the factories and so that's what this is. And Stuart's coming along for the ride. Well, good luck getting him over the hills. Yeah, God, he'll be fine. So I stopped talking. Is there a, uh, a challenge in sort of cycle clothing manufacture between the sort of dependence on um, high-tech fabric and uh, new technology and you know, moving things forward and that uh, growing sense within all the clothing industry that we need to find more sustainable ways of, uh, of manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, it's, so, I mean, with Chapter 3, we're in, we're in a unique position in the sense that we, we've been created as very much a collaborative brand. So we work with other brands and, and tap into their expertise and, and often just come in at the final phase to tweak and, and, and turn the products into our own. So with this project, it's very much the first time that we now have the resources from Chapter 3 growing and becoming more successful through those collaborations to actually take leadership on making our own products. And we're starting with the simplest and doing them locally, finding out how they're made, meeting the people that make them. And, and for all of us at Chapter 3, that's our, our long-term aspiration is that we can turn this into a locally produced company. When I say locally, it can be locally in the UK, it can be locally in Europe. As long as we know the people that are making it, and I think in an ideal world, we try and do everything here in the UK because we're a British brand. But, you know, it's going to take time to do that because it's it's the chicken or the egg. You know, it's, we can't do that all at once or we'd be bust and we have to learn all these people. It's going to take years. Patience is the game. But you're right. Within the cycling industry, uh, unfortunately, it's become a race to the bottom. It's who's, who's making the cheapest stuff and sourcing it. And so when that race to the bottom happens, then you, you have to go to suppliers who are going to give it to you at the lowest price. And that becomes also having to go further and further away. And it becomes the antithesis of this idea of ethical, local, community-based um, construction and environmental an environmental thing process. Turning to the racing, we're a week or so away from the Giro d'Italia, the first of the uh, Grand Tours this year. Um, when you were actually riding, you I, I was, thought you had a slightly sort of mixed relationship with the Giro, a sort of love-hate relationship almost. Uh, you're right, Ian. <laughs> I did. It was, um, 
uh, Italy's always been a love-hate relationship for me, uh, which pretty much sums it up. It's, it's that sort of Latino, uh, that's Italy, isn't it? It's extremes. And for me in particular, if it, the core of it is I used to have horrific allergic reactions in March. And so I'd always turn up there with great aspirations and they'd come pummeling down, but no one diagnosed it for years. So it was just always... I began to hate Italy because I spent all winter training. Then I turned up there. I turned up there on peak form in March, and I'd be down with bronchitis for two weeks. And so that was the beginning of me hating Italy. But I've also had some great successes there and made great friends and and love the the culture and the people. But racing for me was always it was a, it was literally a love and hate relationship. And and unfortunately that has a little bit trickled into even now when I watch the races. I have a love and hate feeling for them. When you're watching the Giro this year, what are you expecting? Who do you think is looking good uh, this year? It's, it's a slightly weird uh, sort of transition year, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you'll probably have to help me slightly on who's doing it because I don't. I, I tend to kind of find out the day before. Um, I know Dumoulin's doing it. Is Ian Bernal doing it? As far as we know, I think he is, yeah. Well, in that case, that, this is which is mad to think, Egan Bernal is what, he's 22, or inspiring to think people will be surprised if he doesn't win because what he's shown to date, he's a phenom. Um, and and he's on the number one Grand Tour team world. He's been given out-and-out leadership for the Giro d'Italia. Egan Bernal, this is, uh, this sounds ridiculous to say, it's his coming of age at 22. Um because there's nothing to say he won't win this. And that's what I think everybody else will be racing against, even somebody of such pedigree as Tom Dumoulin. Tom Dumoulin, who is, I think, the next Dutch Tour de France winner. And and within his career, it would be surprising if he doesn't win it. And yet he uh, persistently, and I don't think it's romantically, because he seems like a very clinical and rational, rational human being, uh, keeps going to the keeps going to the Giro d'Italia. Um, when you think that following the protocol of most Tour de France uh, contenders, they tend to skip the Giro. For the last three years, he's done it. Granted, he won it, uh, and then he he got second last year. But both times he's been he's been able to perform. He's been able to perform last year at the Tour de France. He didn't do it the year before, and this year is obviously he thinks the Giro works for him, which is very rare in the modern generation of Grand Tour cyclists. The Giro is is very much it makes its own stories during the race. The juxtaposition of the Tour de France, there are so many different narratives going on at the same time. There's the build up, there's the during, there's the pre post race, there's there's so many different things. So it becomes quite I don't know what the word would be for it. Uh, overwhelming would probably be the best word. Whereas I think a lot of people love the Giro because it's quite pure. Uh, people will get into it halfway through the race. There, there'll be riders they've never heard of that are doing these great exploits. There are mountains they don't know. There's history they discover. The Giro d'Italia is is a little brother to the Tour de France, and sometimes people prefer the little to the big brother uh, because they're, they've got more character and there's less pressure there and they're, they're more fun. And I think that's very much what the Giro is. And do you think come July, Sky or Ineos are going to be still pretty much untouchable? Most teams would be foolish not to kind of 
have that in the back of their heads. They're going to have to work harder than they've ever done. They can't miss a beat. You kind of you you attack the Tour de France against Ineos, thinking they are unbeatable, and that's often a motivation because it means you can't take time off. You can't you can't not do everything absolutely perfectly because you know they will be because that's what they do and that's why they win. Um, it's a daunting prospect, and especially now they've got the last two. Tour de France when it's in their team and and both of them are very capable of winning this year. David Miller. You're listening to the Ruler podcast supported by Lacker. Lacker is an innovative bicycle insurance company powered by the community. Cyclists join Lacker to protect their bikes and gear without paying upfront premiums. Instead, Lacker settles claims in their community first and shares the cost with everyone at the end of the month. No claims mean you don't pay. My name is Rupert Englander. Um, I'm a self-confessed mammal, and uh, I've been a member of LACA since probably about January 2018. I just love the model. The fact that the crowd is insuring itself, I, I think, is a, is a really great approach. Um, it kind of seems to be taking insurance back to the uh, the roots of insurance in terms of the way it was first done all those hundreds of years ago. The sort of the thing that really captured me was the fact that if there were no insurance claims in the in the crowd that particular month, then you wouldn't actually pay a premium at all. Worst case scenario, you had a full premium payout every month, you'd still be in line with the rest of the industry. But actually, if you consider that in many months there may not be a claim, it would end up a lot cheaper. And actually, in the first year, I think um, five of my 12 months, I had absolutely no premium whatsoever. And if you're new to Lacquer, you can get a £10 credit by signing up today with the discount code RULER. Lacquer, L-A-K-A dot co dot U-K. So it's time to catch up with Ruler's Desire editor, Stuart Clapper. And Stuart, the special uh, Desire edition of Ruler must be uh, pretty close to being in the shops. By the time you get this, it's probably going to be about a week away, which is um, has been kind of a lot of work um, to the point where I think we overlooked how much work it was going to be when we first started doing it. But I think the logistics of something like that is pretty it's pretty mega but we we've got there are you pleased with it yeah really really pleased it's like it looks like us it looks like a ruler issue but like like a gq style but it's that but sort of us you know it's like it, it's really cool it's really good it's got bikes it gravel bikes we've got some interviews with like ted king about riding gravel and grave Narmac, whatever you want to call it, all road. So there's loads of bikes like that in there. And actually the issue that's out at the moment has got gravel bikes in it, which um, I'm going to bang on for about another year about buying one of those next. So, yeah, I'm really, really pleased. Really, Benedict um, Campbell, who I use always use for my photography in the mag, has just he's just so good yeah it looks it looks amazing now the reason we had uh, eros Polly on the podcast uh, this month is of course that he is now your new best friend isn't he oh man we honestly what a dude he's the nicest guy you know the thing like never meet your heroes never meet your heroes in in eros's case definitely definitely meet him 
He's, in fact, I was listening when he was doing the interview and it was like, it's lovely because he was quite nervous. He was quite subdued on there. And he's not like that in real life. I remember asking whether he was in the building when we were there because we stayed with this company called Ingamba, which is, do you know, Joao, do you remember Joao Correa rode for Cervelo test team? A total legend. He's actually an agent for Teo and a few others who just won his first pro, pro, uh, got his first pro victory um, at the weekend. And, um, Nice one, Teo. And uh, but Joao's company, sort of, he's employed as, as a guide, and he he takes people around Tuscany, which is part of the reason why I was in Tuscany uh, with those guys. Which is hard life, isn't it? Um, but yeah, what a legend. In fact, because I, I, I had to tell him this story actually, because a mate of mine, we were talking about how we got into cycling and what was the key moment. What was the moment where we were like, this sport is for me. And his was. He was a young kid at the time. And he watched the stage of Eros's victory. He said he never, ever watched the Tour de France before. This is the old Channel 4 coverage. And he said it was the day Eros, you know, the Mont Ventoux victory. You know, it was, and he said, that was it. I watched that stage having never seen cycling before. And that was it. I just saw this guy, you know, unfortunately, most, most, most stages aren't always that entertaining. But, well, I mean, I told him this and, and Eros was like, Wow, is that the the power of something like that? I mean, it's it's quite that. That was a special win, right? So, what exactly were you doing in Tuscany apart from sort of ligging around with Eros Poli? Well, I was over there with a brand that are about to launch something. There's something that's under embargo from a brand, but I can't tell you any more about it because. It's all under embargo. And I go, oh, shit, I'm just in a parking space outside. I can move my car. I'm going to go and get my Porsche out. And the sad thing is, I think he may be telling the truth about the Porsche. Well, that's it from this podcast. The next one will be a special Desire edition, talking everything bikes, gear and kit. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 